CBHDD is reminding people that the Georgia Crisis and Access Line can help those worried about opioid and stimulant misuse. The toll-free number is online and is active 24-7. More information at opioidresponse.info. Welcome to Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. I'm glad to have all of you with us again uh, for our show today. And once again today, as we've been doing for weeks now, um, we're refocusing our show to deal largely with the most, I think, clearly the most important story most of us as journalists are likely to cover in our lifetimes, and that's the uh, spread of coronavirus and efforts in Georgia and the United States and around the world to uh, try to battle against this disease. Um, We will talk politics a little later in the show today. There was an important election result that came out of Wisconsin, and we're going to talk about the implications of that. Um, But first, before I introduce the panel and our very special guest, I'll give you the latest figures that we have from the Department of Health as it relates to Georgia. Um, We now, according to the Department of Health, and this is as of 7 o'clock last night, have 13,621 13, confirmed cases of COVID-19. That's up 1,071 in 24 hours. We still are reporting uh, cases in uh, basically 157 counties that we know of. I mean, it's possible they're in all 159, but so far the, the Department of Public Health sees them in 157 counties. And uh, sadly, we have 480 deaths total. That's up 38 deaths in the past 24 hours or so. The other quick thing I'll point out is that, you know, we've all been following the uh, University of Washington IHME uh, models for the coronavirus and how it's uh, moving through states and through countries around the world. The Georgia model has shifted a bit. Uh, A week or so ago, they projected that we were going to reach a peak here right around April 23rd in terms of the number of cases, in terms of the day that we would need the most beds, uh, the most medical facilities to take care of people with COVID-19. They've now pushed that bait back to around May 3rd. And, and um, by May 3rd, they're suggesting right now that we might have as many as 91 deaths a day. That's kind of the peak for them. They say that their projections would see us having a total of 3,718 deaths. Of course, those are statistical models, and they've been used widely by government and journalists around the country, Uh, so we are paying attention. Uh, But um, again, these are statistical models subject to change. All right. That said, let's get our panel introduced and then our very special guest. Tamar Hallerman, senior reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, joins me. Uh, And we're glad to have her with us. Kyle Hayes, who uh, is the producer and uh, interviewer on Peach Pod, which is a terrific podcast about politics in Georgia. Georgia uh, is on his mind a lot, despite the fact that he now lives in Washington and works for a think tank up there. But Kyle's a Georgia uh, native and continues to report on what's happening in politics here. And... um, we have Dr. Amy Steigerwald, political science professor from Georgia State University, back with us today. So I'm glad that you all could be here, and I want all of you to have an opportunity to talk with our very special guest, Dr. Patrice Harris, who is the president of the American Medical Association, 
Dr. Harris is an Atlanta-based psychiatrist and uh, public health expert. Um, and uh, she is the first African-American woman to serve as president of the American Medical Association. Dr. Harris, thank you so much. Your schedule, I know how busy it's been because I see you all over the place, and I'm very grateful to you to take for taking a little time to talk with us today. So welcome to Political Rewind, Dr. Harris. Well, thank you so much, and, and thank you for having me. Uh, so let me start, if I may, with, I think, a question that it, it, it's become sort of the question of the day, and that is this notion that the virus has reached a peak in many parts of the United States, and it is time for uh, the country to think about reopening for business. That's certainly what President Trump talks a lot about. Uh, But here in Georgia, in a news conference just yesterday, Governor Kemp said right now his focus is on beating back the virus. He wants to do everything he can, he says, to uh, make sure that we have suppressed the virus before he even thinks about reopening the state for uh, business. As you talk to uh, leaders in business and government, what are you saying about that? And is Governor Kemp taking the right approach? Well, certainly I think it's important uh, to realize that different regions, different cities and towns will have their peak at different times. So, of course, it seems as if New York has reached their peak. Uh, But just yesterday, I was watching a news uh, conference uh, from, I believe, the mayor of uh, Sioux Falls, South Dakota. And uh, his modeling shows that uh, they are on a trajectory to um, increase the number of cases, of course, and not reach their peak. So we have to remember that uh, the peaks will be different in different regions of the country. And the good news about that is those uh, who have not yet reached their peak can do something about it. I I think people have forgotten maybe a little bit the reason why it's very important uh, to slow the spread. And that's so you would not overwhelm the health system in your particular region. You know, just a few weeks ago, we were talking appropriately because it's appropriate to plan. But just a few weeks ago, systems were talking about potentially making decisions about who has access to a ventilator. And the reason we have not had to make those decisions as of yet is because people planned. And so I would say excess bed capacity and excess ventilators is is a good thing. And I also, I I think that uh, Governor Kemp is absolutely correct. It is a false choice uh, between public health and the economy. And we have to make sure that we focus on this virus and slowing the spread um, and then uh, I, I believe it, it makes sense that the economy and loosening restrictions will follow, but will re- follow based on the science and the evidence. Well, let me ask you one follow-up question to that. Um, we, we know at this point, I think clearly, that um, testing is crucial to deciding when you really can reopen a state for business. We've got to have better numbers on where the virus is, where it isn't. Um, 
and yet Georgia continues to lag behind in the number of tests that are made available. If, if this, it, 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 the governor again yesterday talked about expanding testing here, but unless it's expanded dramatically, whether it's in Georgia or some of the other states dealing with the virus, can you really start to say that a state, a community is safe if you don't have a better handle on testing and know who's got the virus and where they are? You know, I think there is general consensus that we've been behind regarding testing capacity from the very beginning. One of the reasons the AMA, uh, you know, several weeks ago called on the president to use all levers of government and the Defense Production Act, certainly it was ventilators, but it was also about testing. We absolutely have to have a dramatic, as you say, increase in testing capacity. And by the way, that is both the diagnostic test and, and hopefully that will be those points of care, uh, rapid results tests. Those need to be available. We certainly cannot, uh, you, know, you know, it is much better to be able to have those tests within a half an hour versus t 10 days. But the other piece is the antibody test. Now, we've got a lot of folks working on that. Uh, none have been FDA approved yet, but those antibody tests will tell you if you've already been exposed and that is also good data um, in decision-making and informed decision-making around loosening restrictions and, and going back to work. So there is no question um, that we have to dramatically increase testing capacity. And, you know, it's not just the test kits. It's the reagents. It's the, the mixed media. I know that's a little bit in the woods, but, um, you know, supply chain issues are, are, are critical here. And we need a coordinated effort uh, to do that, n n no question. And we have to make sure these tests are equitably available throughout the, the communities. Um, we have a large rural population here in Georgia, and so folks will, uh, we, it shouldn't be that they have to drive for miles and miles to get access to these tests, um, either in the rural areas or in our more uh, suburban and, and urban areas. Dr. Harris, Tamar Hallerman here from the AJC, and you said at a town hall with your national membership last week, you had very strong words about the government and, and their response, and you mentioned that the doctors have paid a terrible price for our nation's lack of, of preparation. And I'm wondering, looking specifically at Georgia, what would you say about the state's level of preparation, and how has that impacted our doctors here? Well, certainly physicians and nurses and other healthcare workers on the front line are paying a terrible price, and, uh, and, and not in every in incident do they have the equipment that they need. And uh, I know and I'm hearing from my colleagues about the worry and concern they face every day by not having uh, the PPE that they need. And uh, certainly, unfortunately, I also hear about my colleagues who are dying uh, ultimately, paying the ultimate price. And so, um, you know, there will be time um, in an after-action review. That, that's what happens in, in public health to go back to see and review the level of, of, of preparation. Um, and and it, we, we must, it, it is not a hope, we must, again, at all levels, federal, state, and local, we must ensure that we uh, have addressed these supply chain issues going forward and uh, that we have addressed the issues around having just basic uh, safety equipment uh, for those on the front lines. Kyle? Uh, 
Dr. Harris, thanks so much for being here. This is Kyle from Peach Pod. Um, you mentioned uh, the, the mayor of Sioux Falls and the possibility that this pandemic would reach peak in rural areas potentially later. How concerned are you about the capacity of health systems in rural communities, particularly in states like Georgia's that have had high rates of uninsurance and hospital closures and hospital systems that have been more financially vulnerable in recent years? Well, again, very concerned because, uh, you know, oftentimes rural areas may be low-resourced or, or under-resourced. Actually, I've talked to a couple of pediatricians in Georgia, and uh, they know that in some of our rural areas, maybe there are one or two offices and uh, worried about the viability of those offices um, after we get over the worst uh, of this uh, pandemic. So, so very concerned about the rural areas. And as you, you know, if they were under-resourced or low-resourced, they don't have uh, ventilators that um, perhaps the ventilator capacity that we may have here in the Atlanta metro area. And so, again, that is one of the reasons why we wanted to make sure that we did the social distancing. I, I like to use the term physical distancing. As Bill said, I'm a psychiatrist, and so I do want us to stay socially connected. But the reason, again, um, we were keen on that, and the AMA sent a letter to the National Governors Association requesting that they all enact stay-at-home shelter-in-place orders so we wouldn't have the peaks, so we wouldn't overwhelm uh, capacity. And as we've seen, even in some of the most resourced uh, areas of this country, they were worried about capacity. And so that just shows you that in our lower-resourced areas, such as our, our um our rural areas, I, I, and I can't remember exactly, but I saw a report where there's only one or two ventilators. And, of course, rural hospitals often have a large catchment area, if you will. So that is a concern. And that's why you need a coordinated effort. Certainly, if someone is looking at a database and a tracking system where they know the needs and that you could, you know, we had asked the federal government to do the tracking, but governors can certainly do this and know which areas of the state have but one ventilator and which area of the state have 100 ventilators and track that. And then based on the data and the evidence can, can make sure um, the supplies get to the priority areas as they become hotspots. Again, hopefully, if we do our physical distancing, that will uh, alleviate that issue. But we also want to be prepared for the worst. We can certainly hope for the best, but um, it is our obligation to be prepared for the worst. Amy, do you want to jump in? Um, I'd love to. Uh, Dr. Harris, this is Amy Steigerwald um, from Georgia State University. And I wanted to ask you about the emerging data that suggests that there's a very clear racial disparity in how COVID-19 is affecting people, um, and that in particular, African-Americans are um, appear to be catching the virus more frequently and also much more likely um, to die from it. And to sort of talk with you about that the data in Georgia seems to suggest the same. And what does that say sort of more broadly about um, sort of health issues and perhaps sort of disparities and access to care that we're seeing across different racial communities? Sure, absolutely. And this current pandemic is really shining a bright light on uh, many issues sort of pre-COVID-19 that that uh, people knew about, but certainly uh, now it's getting a bright uh, spotlight. 
certainly uh, this data, this early data regarding race and ethnicity, particularly around African Americans, that we have the best data, although it's quite limited and only coming out in a few cities, but does show, unfortunately, that there is a disproportionate impact. Now, uh, many of us are not surprised because pre COVID-19, there was a disproportionate impact in the African-American community, higher rates of diabetes, higher rates of hypertension, and so, and higher rates of asthma. Those are the very uh, conditions uh, that make you at higher risk for ICU admissions, a more severe course of COVID-19 and death. And so if you have this COVID-19 crisis on top of a crisis that pre was pre-existing, uh, the disproportionate impact, you are seeing these very tragic numbers and health inequities are in the spotlight. And we have to make sure we address in the, in the, in the immediate need, the AMA sent a letter to HHS um, asking uh, the HHS to be certain to collect, analyze, and then disseminate the data regarding race and ethnicity and, and communities with lower uh, English, uh, uh, limited English proficiency. And then we'll have to use that data to track interventions. I mean, that, that, that's what we do. It, you know, we use the evidence and the data. And so very concerned about that. I, I do know the AMA will be leading on that. We have a new Center for Health Equity. We have a chief health equity officer and Dr. Aletha Maybank, as many know, our headquarters in Chicago, we're going to be leading in that conversation, but that's an all-in uh, proposition, and we need, you know, the business community, transportation, city planners, government at all levels um, to address this issue both acutely now, but also um, as we um, get on the other side of this pandemic. You know, Dr. Harris, it seems to me that in, in response to what you're just talking about now, the question Amy asked you, uh, this pandemic is, is, uh, is raising, uh, making us understand in so much um, more significant ways the fault lines that travel through our society. And no greater example of that is the way African Americans are struggling with this disease. And in fact, we're to give a little plug, we're going to devote an entire edition of Political Rewind to that subject tomorrow. Among our panelists will be uh, Michael Thurman, the CEO of DeKalb County. He's very worried about the incidence of African-American positive cases in uh, his county and beyond. So we're going to do a lot more with that on the show tomorrow. But let me, when you uh, uh, spoke to reporters uh, during uh, the uh, National Press Club Forum uh, the other day, uh, you were very clear about two things that I think are important to ask you to discuss with us. Uh, one was uh, your plead, you pleaded with uh, elected officials to follow the science, not politics, and uh, pleaded with people to understand the difference between fact and rumor. And you cited a number of examples of rumors such as Interestingly, we talked about African-Americans and the virus. Uh, this rumor that was rife for quite a while that African-Americans couldn't get the disease, that children couldn't get the disease. Um, the disease has become politicized to some extent. We know that there are conservative voices out there uh, saying to people, t continuing to tell people that this disease is not as serious as the fake news media wants to make it. Uh, we know that the president at times has proposed theories, uh, particularly in terms of the kind of drugs that he thinks can be useful 
that don't necessarily support the science. How worried are you that we've turned that there's a politicization of this virus that can have a long-term impact in a negative way? Well, certainly, Bill, this virus does not discriminate, and uh, it impacts all of us, uh, age, uh, race, gender. Um, You know, everyone uh, is uh, susceptible to uh, this virus, and we cannot afford uh, to discuss this virus uh, in political terms. We really do have to fall back on the science and the evidence, and that's one of the reasons uh, the AMA uh, did the town hall. And, and two days before the town hall, I gave an address on the importance of science. You know, science has been under attack um, uh, for many years now, and we really have to. It's absolutely appropriate for everyone to have their own political views. The diversity of opinion and thought is a great thing in this country, but we should come to debate. Uh, particularly about uh, the health and, and, and medicine uh, based on the science and the evidence informed on those. And so that's where we are at the AMA. Um, it's about the science and the evidence. Actually, our patients uh, required that of us before uh, COVID-19, and they uh, should. And, and we will continue to, to fall back on the science and the evidence on COVID-19 and really all of the work uh, that we do because our patients' lives depend on it. Uh, You know, tomorrow we've only got Dr. Harris for a few more minutes because she is extremely busy these days, but I want to give you a chance to ask a question. But I also want to throw out an observation, and if you want to mention that quickly and then ask your question tomorrow. You know, um, I do think that this raises some serious questions. Yesterday's uh, White House briefing was one of the most uh, egregious examples of it being turned into a political event. And, and I do think that uh, when you're talking about science rather than p- politics, it does raise once again this question of whether the network should be spending as much time doing these things live tomorrow. But go ahead and ask your question and comment on that if you want to. Sure. And I mean, you've seen fighting with, um, you know, members of Trump's administration and networks that that don't carry those briefings fully live. You know, they might only cover President Trump's remarks, but not Vice President Pence and and kind of all the fighting around that. But I, I wanted to ask Dr. Harris about kind of the economic aspects of all of this and how it could impact the health, the health care system. We've seen a staggering amount of people lose their jobs over the last month. Um, we're hovering at an unemployment rate of something around 10 percent. I've seen as high as 15 percent. Um, and, and people lose their jobs. They also lose their health care. And Georgia is a state that hasn't expanded Medicaid. And you talk to Democrats and they say that's something that could really help um, the situation that we're seeing in hospitals. And, and I'm curious if you could talk about that a little bit more and the economic toll, what it means for health care and what you would like to see in Georgia. Well, certainly uh, health and the economy are intertwined. Uh, certainly we know that. But, uh, but again, it's a false choice to say one or the other because they are so uh, interconnected. Um, as you may know, uh, the American uh, Medical Association supported um, the Affordable Care Act. was not uh, a perfect piece of legislation, but it certainly um, moved us forward with um, having less uninsured in this country. And, and we believe the path forward is to build upon the progress of the um, Affordable Care Act. Certainly, uh, as part of that, we need a very strong safety net uh, system in this country. 
And so that is, is why we do uh, encourage everyone to expand Medicaid. I have to say, certainly as a psychiatrist and knowing sort of pre-ACA, um, um, we know that so many, I know uh, that so many of my patients were able um, to have um, access to better uh, health care, mental health care uh, through Medicaid. And so um, we, we certainly expand that. And then, of course, uh, this is not about um, health insurance, but certainly expanding the tax credits and subsidies and all of those things, but certainly moving forward. So um, we, we certainly need to continue to have that a conversation and a strong safety net uh, is key, and the AMA is very supportive of a very strong safety net. Dr. Harris, I'd love to be able to give Kyle uh, Hayes one last chance to ask you a question, and then I promise we'll let you go back to your other work. Kyle, you get the last question. Thanks, Bill. I, I think building off of that, um, another sort of downstream effect that may be on people's horizons right now is the impact of the economic slowdown on state budgets and state revenue. Uh, before the crisis set in, Georgia was already considering budget cuts to state-funded behavioral health services. So how worried are you about other downstream effects on our healthcare system, maybe beyond those directly impacted by the ACA, but are funded, for instance, by state funds or, or other public spending on health services? So any reduction in spending in, in health services, as you might imagine, worries me personally, and of course, worries uh, the AMA. And so, again, um, health is such a significant driver uh, of, uh, you know, as we talked about being interconnected with the economy. You know, as we know, as businesses um, make decisions about where they want to come, they, they, they look at uh, health, they look at education, they look at, you know, all those things that are the social determinants of health, which, Bill, you probably will be talking about more uh, uh, tomorrow. Um, regarding the disparity. So um, that is something at the AMA, you know, we are we are monitoring and, and tracking a lot of issues. Again, uh, physician practice viability. You know, sometimes uh, folks lump us all in together. Certainly all of us are healthcare stakeholders, but uh, hospital needs are different from, uh, you know, the small uh, solo private practice needs. And so we will have to have a diversity of options and solutions as we go forward. This will be a new normal, um, and we will have to make sure that we are leading the conversations. I'll say one more, just learning. Again, we'll, we'll all be learning. There are certain things that we are doing at this moment that we should be doing in an emergency. Um, and, I, you know, we will have to have thoughtful conversations about what should we continue to do and what we shouldn't continue to do. You know, there are very... Um, you one size fits all. Actually, I haven't seen one one size fits all solution. Solutions are better when they're targeted, and uh, someone is certainly reviewing uh, the impact over the long term. So, I'm worried about any um, any uh, reduction in support uh, for for healthcare and and physicians in many areas. And so, we will certainly uh, continue to to monitor those at the AMA and um, be a part of that conversation. Well, Dr. Harris, um, we're so grateful to you for taking time uh, to talk with us. And um, considering you represent the biggest national organization that uh, speaks on behalf of doctors, nurses, other medical professionals, uh, I guess it's fair to give you uh, to, to pass on to them thanks for uh, the extraordinary job 
that the medical professionals in our state and beyond are doing in risky times. Um, they're taking uh, their lives in their hands to serve the community, and I can't imagine a higher calling than that. And I thank you so much for being with us and the way you've represented the people in your field uh, on the show today. Thanks a lot, Dr. Harris. Uh, stay safe, please. Thank you, and uh, you all stay safe as well. And to everyone listening, please stay home. Unless you have to go out for <laughs> groceries or medicine, stay home. Thank you. Great advice. Thanks, Dr. All right, let's get our first break of the show out of the way. When we come back, uh, we're going to talk some politics on Political Rewind. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. We are back with Tamar Hallerman, Kyle Hayes, and Amy Steigerwalt on Political Rewind. Um, Amy, uh, let's start with you. You know, early on, <clears throat> excuse me, early on in the virus, uh, Governor Kemp took a, a lot of criticism for his reluctance to order shelter-in-place rules for the entire state. He uh, said over and over again he wanted to watch how things unfold. He didn't think the whole state was impacted. He, he had a lot of reasons for not doing it. He did, of course, eventually order a shelter in place, and we have seen the curve come down a bit as a result of that. But, you know, it's interesting. I thought, Amy, that yesterday during his news conference, he did resist a temptation that we've seen other Republican governors uh, really leap into. So you've got Asa Hutchison in Arkansas, you've got the governor of Texas, you've got the president of the United States all saying, gee, we've got to start figuring out how to open business back up. We can't let this kill our economy. Uh, Kemp stuck to business yesterday in terms of dealing with the virus. He talked about uh, urging uh, for expansion of testing and test results being coming out more quickly. They've got now emergency hospital beds set up in the World Congress Center and other locations. It, it felt yesterday like Governor, Governor Kemp really was embracing the need to focus very specifically on this. Do you, do you think that's a fair observation? I do. And I think some of it may have to do with where the outbreaks have actually taken place in Georgia. Right. We're a bit different from a lot of places where, like, technically the sort of highest number of cases are in the metro Atlanta area, but the largest um, sort of outbreaks, particularly when you look at the rate per uh, the sort of per capita rate are in a lot of the rural counties. So uh, Derby County, uh, around sort of Sumter, Albany, um, places like that, we've really seen the rural areas having issues and a lot of it also sort of reacting to sort of where there was the biggest hesitation. So we know that a lot of outbreaks have been tied to uh, funerals. We know that they've been tied to church services or other sort of large community events that were still going on. And so I think some of that is also a reaction to the places where we've seen real issues, particularly in Georgia, and particularly hitting 
uh, the rural areas that Kemp has focused a lot of attention on um, throughout his uh, career and especially during his governorship. Um, Kyle, it, it, did you feel that, you know, it's interesting, again, I mean, we, we know that any number of Republican governors have taken their cues from what President Trump does, uh, and perhaps early on, the governor of Georgia, Governor Kemp, did that when the president was downplaying the seriousness of the virus. Uh, but it struck me that it, he's now, in in two ways, made it clear that he, he is willing to distance himself from the president. One, when he named Kelly Loeffler, despite the president wanting Doug Collins to be the choice for Senate. Uh, and then again, uh, in not kind of towing the president, the White House line right now, that it, we got to get business going again in Georgia. Kyle? Yeah, and I think that that is somewhat reflective of his view on the testing. He conceded that testing was not where it needed to be, and I think he has this understanding that if testing is not where you need it to be, then it makes it really difficult uh, to impossible to take the economic steps of beginning to open things up and, and doing so safely. I mean, if you think about big Georgia industries and hospitality or the movie industry, those are uh, – those are industries that would be difficult or impossible to do with with some element of social distancing still required. I mean, so I think he understands that reality that without testing, without the building blocks in place to open things back up, uh, you have to keep the focus on combating the virus and the public health response. So, um, Tamara, I want to get you in here, but let's listen to a little of what Governor Kemp said in his news conference uh, yesterday. Uh, Sam, why don't we go first with number one? Despite our partnerships and undeniable progress, our testing numbers in Georgia continue to lag. As I've said before, the status quo is unacceptable, and Dr. Toomey is pushing public health officials across our state to collect more specimens and to process more tests. And Tamar, uh, Kyle mentioned it. The governor mentions it. Testing has been an issue here. We had a hard, we've had a hard time getting uh, real uh, numbers on how many tests are actually being given to what percent of the population here. And we know for sure that there are far few tests being given here. Uh, talk about that. Yeah, my colleagues crunched the numbers on this yesterday, and they found that as of midday yesterday, Georgia ranked 45th out of 50 states um, for tests per capita. And, and that was something that, that Kent mentioned, you know, was, was not acceptable. And, and we heard Dr. Toomey yesterday talk about how they're expanding the criteria for who is eligible for tests now in Georgia. So that includes asymptomatic people who were definitely in contact with somebody who has the coronavirus um, and, and that sort of thing. So, so perhaps that will help, but, but it still takes a while for a lot of these tests to be processed. And you're seeing in other parts of the country um, tests having to be sent to far-flung places because local labs are just completely overloaded. Um, and look, there's, there's plenty of time for Governor Kemp to change his mind if the numbers do, in fact, go down. You've seen Trump talk about opening up the economy by early May. You know, it's still mid-April. Perhaps if things trend downward, you know, there's still time for, for Kemp to change his mind. But I think there's also a mindfulness. You don't want to be the, the leader who reopened the state and only to see a second wave for things to get really worse. I, I have been writing a 
story about the, the Spanish flu outbreak in 1918 and how Georgia handled things back then. And initially, the city council of Atlanta voted to close down a ton of businesses for, for two weeks, and the political pressure became so severe, they reopened everything after two and a half weeks. And lo and behold, within about a month and a half, infection rates surged again. So I'm, I'm sure folks see that, and they don't want that to be them. You know, the classic story, of course, about a 1918 uh, virus, uh, it flu, is that uh, uh, the comparison between St. Louis and Philadelphia. Uh, Philadelphia fought back against the virus pretty well. They limited uh, crowds getting together. They did establish their own version of physical distancing. And when they thought they had the virus beat, two days after they announced it was gone, there was a rally, a war bonds rally, that 200,000 people in Philadelphia attended. And guess what? Within days, the number of cases spiked dramatically, and Philadelphia was right back in the middle of the worst possible situation. St. Louis did it completely differently. They really kept people uh, isolated from one another, and they never did have terrible problems uh, with it. So, you know, Kyle, it, it does come back to... Um, if we don't have tests, I don't know about you, Kyle, you're in Washington right now, but I don't know when I'm going to, you know, if they tell me on May 15th that we've pretty well beaten back coronavirus, how safe am I going to feel, nevertheless, going out into the streets, going to the stores, going to the malls, if we haven't had extensive enough testing to really have a sense of where the virus is and isn't, Kyle? Well, and this speaks to the false choice between the economy and the public health response, because I think a lot of people will feel that way, that if they don't feel confident that it is safe to go out in public, to go shopping at at retail establishments, to go to the movies, to go get their haircut, things like that, they probably won't continue to do those things. And parts of the economy will still continue to struggle just because of the choices that consumers make. Um, When you do look back at the the 1918 flu epidemic, you also find that the cities that took the most aggressive public health responses, their economies performed better in the wake of that pandemic. Um, And so that's, you know, just more evidence that that the interests in both of these cases, the public health and the economic case, those interests are aligned in terms of beating the virus to bring the economy back. All right, let's um, let's do this. Let's talk about one more story uh, that relates to the virus and then take a break and, and come back and talk about the politics that uh, unfolded in Wisconsin over the last week. Amy Steigerwald, no virus is good enough to beat down the forces, the pro-gun forces in the state of Georgia. In many other states, I suspect that's true as well. I want to play a little bit of an ad that Paul Brown has now put up on his website. Paul Brown, of course, former one of the most he bragged that he was the most conservative member of Congress when he served in the U.S. House. Uh, And uh, way back when he first ran for that race, he uh, featured an ad in which he was shown uh, firing guns. And he's back again. He's now running for Senate race in Senate race number two. And uh, the a spot that he recorded shows him firing an assault-style weapon, and this is just a little bit of what he says. In uncertain times like these, the right to defend yourself, your property, and your family could not be more important. Whether it's looting hordes from Atlanta, 
or a tyrannical government from Washington did a few better liberty machines than an AR-15. Amy Steigerwald, looting hordes from Atlanta. What do you make of that commercial? Um, the thought that I had is that likely the hordes would be rushing for the beaches and not necessarily coming to loot on anything. <laughs> um, it's also reminding me a bit of when the 5th District was accused of burning at one point, um, which was a shock to all of us who actually live in the 5th District. But I think it is... Um, suggesting kind of broader issues that still exist in all of this. Of um, There's definitely some uh, subtle and not so subtle hints in there about who's more likely to live in Atlanta. Uh, those who, I mean, it's a evil urban city. It uh, is more likely to have racial minorities. Those who have to lower class and are not kind of the good people that live out uh, in the rural areas, and it's very much tapping into sort of those feelings and those types of fears um, to try to capitalize on them. And unfortunately, studies do show that people respond to uh, fear-baiting ads really pretty well, that it kind of raises your endorphins and it also causes you to perhaps uh, take different answers than you and, and pick different sort of policy outcomes or vote for different people, particularly if you then think that that candidate can um, protect you from whatever the fearful thing is. Tamara, you certainly covered Paul Brown and know him well from your tenure <laughs> as the Washington correspondent for the AJC. Yeah, and, and kind of gun rights are, are very much a central part of, of who he is. He, he came, he first got involved in politics. He was, he's a trained doctor, and, um, you know, that's what he did professionally, but he first got involved in politics as a, a lobbyist for um, a hunting organization. And if you ever visited his office when he was in, uh, when he was serving in the House, it was filled with giant taxidermied animals that, that he hunted, uh, including in Africa on safari, giant animals. And, and there's an incredible video from my, my former colleagues at Roll Call where he gives this office tour with giant semi-terrifying animals all, all over the wall, but but it's very much a part of who he is. Um, and, and look, it's a great way to kind of uh, get your, your base out, the Republican conservative base, when you, you talk about people taking away your guns. Um, and, and it's something that we've seen even in the last couple of weeks here in Georgia, uh, where we saw a gun owner suing uh, Governor Kemp and a Fulton County probate judge because uh, some state courts have suspended issuing carrying licenses. Yeah, you know, Kyle, it, we can all sort of, um, in a sardonic way, chuckle over the extreme kind of messaging that Paul Brown puts out here, especially the hordes, the looting hordes from Atlanta. He, he insists there's no racial messaging there, but I think people can reach their own conclusions pretty easily on that. But, Kyle, the fact of the matter is, number one, uh, you got a huge field of people who want that Senate seat, and you got to find some way to distinguish yourself. Uh, Tamar sort of referenced that. And number two, there is a considerable uh, population of conservative, conspiracy-minded people out there who are reached by a message like this. And especially in times of crisis like we're in right now, it's hard to predict what messages like this might do to motivate those most conservative people 
who do believe in conspiracies. Yeah, well, I think, number one, for Paul Brown's ad, I think all that ruckus that he's hearing from Atlanta is people going onto their apartment balconies every evening to cheer on healthcare workers and other people who are working to save lives amidst <laughs> this pandemic. Um, I, this is an ad that you can chuckle at, but I, I didn't have a lot of patience for this ad. I think particularly at this time, I think it it sort of leans into some of that group of the Republican base that does have those beliefs and, and conspiracy-minded thoughts about what is going on now. And I think that that um, Tamar mentioned the the lawsuit that was filed related to issuing gun permits, and and that uh, was reported alongside another story from the AJC showing that gun sales and sales of ammunition were all up in the lead up to this crisis, um, and that has other real world effects that are that are overshadowed uh, amidst this crisis. Number one being that uh, people who are survivors of domestic violence are are more likely to be victims of that violence um, during this time of quarantine when, when people are locked in their homes together and when apparently people appear to have more access to guns. So I, I think that there are important issues here that, that can't be overlooked amidst uh, this ad from Paul Brown. Yeah. Um, all right, let's do this. Let's get our final break of the show out of the way and then turn to what I've been promising all along, the interesting results out of the Wisconsin a presidential primary. Uh, this is Political Rewind. We'll be right back. Tamar Hellerman, Wisconsin voters uh, went to the polls a, a week ago, last Tuesday, uh, to vote for in presidential preference primary, but also an important Supreme Court uh, seat that was coming open. Uh, and of course, Many people were horrified when they saw the scenes of uh, voters crowding into polling places, standing in long lines without the proper physical distance between them and the person in front of them. There were all sorts of uh, awful scenes that unfolded. Um, and, and we know that what happened there was that Democrats argued that the race, that election, should be held almost entirely by, should be done by mail, and that the courts should authorize the extension of the deadline for another week or so to allow people to vote by mail, not be exposed to each other. And uh, Republicans fought back hard, saying, no, no, we can't delay this primary. And it seemed relatively clear to Mar that Republicans were hoping that the way they handled this thing would put their Republican Supreme Court nominee into office largely because she would have expanded the Republican majority on that state Supreme Court to act on a voter suppression case that could take as many as 200,000 or more Wisconsin voters off the polls. Well, long story short, the liberal Democrat won the election by almost 10 points tomorrow. Fascinating uh, turnout and result. Yeah, and ahead of 
all the voting, you heard Democratic leaders already kind of complaining about the the outcome that they thought they were going to get. You heard Tom Perez, the the chair of the DNC, calling it voter suppression on steroids, Republicans trying to steal the election in Wisconsin. Um, You had the the chair of the Democratic Party there talking about lawsuits that were going to be filed by voters who were unable to cast absentee ballots, that sort of thing. Uh, But actually, there's the key Supreme Court race there that, that you mentioned where there was a you know, a, a liberal challenger who ended up ended up beating a, a conservative incumbent justice by quite a big margin. And in general, these are races where the margin of victory tends to be pretty narrow in, in Wisconsin. So I think Democrats took it as a really good sign when, when this liberal challenger ended up defeating the incumbent by almost 10 points. Yeah. And Amy, of course, Joe Biden uh, was uh, uh, declared the winner in that race, too, by a, a pretty wide margin. We, we already knew he was the presumptive nominee of the party. But I guess, Amy, if I'm the Trump uh, campaign, I look at what happened in Wisconsin, and I'd be a little nervous about what it might say about a very important state in November. Definitely, because not only did people turn out in the middle of a global pandemic, uh, with lots of concerns, right, especially, I mean, one of the big things that happened is that in uh, Milwaukee County, the normal 180 polling places got reduced to just five. So you also had right, these sort of very long lines. But the weather was also horrific. It was hailing, it was raining, and yet people still waited in two, three-hour-long lines to be able to vote. And I think it really is a sign of how much people are invested in the results of these elections and wanting to see uh, their person win or perhaps, you know, the person that they dislike lose. And I think that that doesn't bode well for Trump. I mean, the other part to put it with is that um, his the, the sort of rally around the flag effect that he had gotten, that bump in the polls from there being this sort of national crisis has dissipated, if not uh, fallen. And so his approval ratings are also now uh, very low, and he doesn't have a strong economy to be able to run on. And those are all things that definitely harm the incumbent in any presidential race. You know, Kyle, I said earlier that the coronavirus is exposing fault lines that we knew were there, but are making them more real and more dramatic. And to some extent, what happened in Wisconsin is an example of that in terms of partisan lines, Republicans insisting on on in-person voting, perhaps to suppress the vote in large cities and uh, increase the vote in rural areas. But one way or the other, uh, their their effort backfired. And um, I'm curious what your thoughts are about what this means for Wisconsin in November. I think it raises the possibility that Republicans could be wrong about a reflexive opposition to absentee voting. I mean, expanding access to absentee voting. They could be wrong by assuming that that would actually benefit them. Um, Our House Speaker David Ralston said that, you know, mailing ballots out to everyone would would hurt Republicans. He later tried to walk that back saying that he was talking about voter fraud. But I think given the fact that the pandemic the, the virus is uh, a higher risk for older people um, that make up more of the Republican base. Some Republican voters may be more likely to feel like, oh, I, I don't want to I don't want to go out and, and vote at the polls. I'll stay home. Maybe they forgot to ask for their absentee ballot. Um, the political ramifications 
for Republicans could be different than what they expected by opposing absentee balloting. Kyle Hayes, you get the last word in today's Political Rewind. Thank you for joining us from Washington. By the way, what do you have up on Peach Pod right now? What can people listen to? Uh, We've been uh, taking a look at the response to the virus as well, Um, particularly the response from the federal government, the failures on testing, and also um, some of the economic measures that have been working their way through Congress. All right. That's Peach Pod. You can uh, subscribe to it uh, wherever you get your podcast, just as you can, Political Rewind. Tamar Hallerman, thank you. We always enjoy Tuesdays when uh, you are with us. And A.B. Steigerwald, uh, our best to you as well. Thank you for listening today. Tomorrow again, we'll look at African-Americans and coronavirus with uh, DeKalb County CEO Michael Thurmond and others on the subject. I'm Bill Nygut. See you tomorrow.